We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Okay, right, so we are up to episode 12 of Kings, um, which means that we are um, going to be looking at chapter 11. It's kind of the downfall <coughs> of Solomon. And um, up until this point, there's been the, the narrator of Kings has kind of used sarcasm or exaggeration to kind of point at some weaknesses within Solomon's character. But in chapter 11, he kind of completely lifts the veil and he just exposes Solomon for, for some of the weaknesses that he's got. But rather than going chronologically through um, the chapter, I want to kind of almost start at the back and work to the, full, to the front because there's something at the front that I really want us to, to take the time uh, to look at. And so... Um, Let's uh, come here. So, in, chap- uh, in verse 14, he says, And God rose up adversary, uh, an adversary against Solomon. Okay, so first point I want to consider is what it's like to be on the wrong side of a ruthless and jealous God. It's a pretty terrifying idea. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the different adversaries, but we've got this guy called um, Haydad. He's quite a looker, isn't he? I can't say if that's accurate. <laughs> when, when I googled images, this is who came up for Haydad. So, okay. Nice bit of eye candy for all the ladies. <laughs> um, so he was um, one of the adversaries that God wrote, uh, rose, raised up from Edom, which was south of Israel. Um, There's not much about him, um, but if you're interested, look at the PowerPoint at some point. It's not particularly relevant, and I'm short of time, so we're going to just scoot past him. And there was another adversary called Reason, the son of Eliadad. I practiced this. Someone's son. Okay, so... This was another guy that God raised up and started to attack kind of more from, from the north. So you've got these two external forces beginning to attack Solomon's kingdom, which had to this point been renowned for being at peace with everyone. Then we actually um, see the, ri- the raising up of Jeroboam. Now Jeroboam was actually an Israelite, so he was an enemy from within. He'd actually been spotted by King Solomon himself as someone with great aptitude, and so he'd actually brought him into his government. Um, But then he was approached by this um, prophet who had said, God's actually going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon for his his decisions, and you're going to take ten of the twelve tribes. And so... He tore up his, his, his robe and he asked Jeroboam to pick up ten to symbolise what was going to happen. Now, sounds like Solomon kind of heard about this. So Solomon kind of did a Saul and tried to kill the man that God was raising up. So um, Jeroboam fled to Egypt until Solomon died. And so you're getting this, these, these enemies from without and within that God is raising up. At the same time, though, you can actually see that God was, that, that these were actually partly Solomon's own choices. 
So God was using the failures and the, um, the, the lack of attention that Solomon was paying because of his infatuation with other things. God actually used that to seek to bring a discipline, a correction to Solomon. And so I started to think about this idea of a ruthless God. And the fact that sometimes God takes credit for, for troubles and difficulties that seem to come in our lives. And we'll see that throughout the rest of the Kings uh, series. Where a lot of these Kings talks about God has done this. But then at the same time you can see completely directly related, the king has brought it on themselves. And I think the message is, God's saying, you know what? I am sovereign. I rule over all things and I can work even your foolish decisions into my perfect plans. And there's something reassuring about that, that that a ruthless and jealous God will still use the, the decisions and the poor decisions we make to bring correction. But it's terrifying at the same time says in uh, verse 39, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So God means business. He's a jealous God. He's in ruthless pursuit of what he wants. The thing is, what he wants is us. He invites us into a relationship with him right from the beginning of time. And he's going to roll up his sleeves and discipline us and discipline the house of David in this story in order to bring them back. Now, if he was to give the house of David what the house of David deserved, they would have been obliterated. But in his mercy, he's trying to still save them and rescue them. So when God declares war, he's not declaring war on us. He's declaring war on the thing that we are holding on to or that is holding on to us. And it's pretty scary to be in the proximity of something that God has declared war on. The thing is, I kind of think of a situation like this. Like, you know the typical hostage situation? And it's not exactly like this image. So let me, let me just grab Moses, Martin, Micah. Come here, help me a second. I'm going to do a little... Little illustration using these guys. Pretend these are really threatening looking weapons. It's all I have for the kids my age. You get this one. Micah, you get this one. Now, this is sin. This is mankind. Now, sin has hold of mankind. But the thing is, mankind also has hold of sin. Okay? So it's not just in that picture where, where that person is a complete victim. There is an entanglement that we choose to take. So when Christ comes in, I, I probably, you know, no, not meant to fire. So we're in a hostage situation. Hold, hold, hold it, you go. He can't take the shot. Because there's the danger that he's going to take the one that he loves out with it. So what's he going to do to separate sin and mankind? Because he could take them both out or he could just walk away. But he's in ruthless pursuit because he's a jealous God. So what we see in Jesus, he actually lays down his gun, stretches out his arms, sin 
seizes opportunity. Sin lets go of mankind and charges to take down Jesus. Now they both go down. Okay. (laughs) And you stay. But he comes back up again, victorious, and he leaves sin down there. Then (laughs) they can embrace. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, lads. So that's how a ruthless, jealous God deals with us. When he raises up adversaries, his process is, I need to separate you from the thing that you're hanging on to that isn't me, that will never satisfy you, which is not what I was designing you for. So I had this question. Could it be that some of the negative things that are in your life right now, that is the thing that you're praying for God to take away, could actually be allowed by God to nudge you back into his direction? Is there some that, oh God, just take this away. And God's saying, I'm actually using that to bring you back in line. So you're asking for the wrong thing. Instead of asking to take this factor out of my life, ask him, God, are you using this in my life to bring something to me that I'm I'm missing so it says now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon don't know I guess so there's probably some other book we don't have it And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and he was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Solomon died. Having studied Solomon for all these weeks, I actually feel a little bit bereft. Solomon's gone. We've kind of journeyed with Solomon. But Why has he left? Do you remember the handover that David did to Solomon? He gave him advice. He anointed him and he recognised him. Solomon's not handed anything over to Rehoboam apart from a kingdom with massive cracks now in it. Makes you wonder, what is it that you're leaving for the next generation? So, here's a question. What so angered God? Why did we end up in this situation? Verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. There's something about a stubborn and divided heart. Now, we've talked a lot about the issue of heart. But there's two points I want to draw out of that that particular verse. Firstly, ignore a warning at your own peril. God had twice appeared to Solomon saying, if you trust me, if you serve me, if you obey me, if you follow my commands, I will look after you you and your children after you. Even when Solomon's excited about the temple, that's the thing that God wants to keep talking to him about. 
make sure you follow me. Make sure you obey me. Make sure you, uh, you love me. There's a verse in Proverbs, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Proverbs sometimes gives us great mental images. <laughs> the number of people in times where, where I've been pastoring and walking with people, where they have had a clear warning or confrontation on a particular issue, where they themselves has recognised God spoke to me about doing this or not doing that, and yet they gave themselves back over to the very thing that God had warned them about. And so many times they fell hard after that moment. They returned to their vomit. The thing that God had tried to deliver them from, they chose to embrace again. And so my question for you is, is there a warning that you're yet to heed? Is there something that he said to you that you just keep putting on the back burner? Keep saying, oh yeah, well, eventually I'll get to that. Ignore warnings at your own peril. The other part of that message is a turned heart. That's what Solomon had, a heart that had turned away from him. Now in all the times that the Bible talks about heart, we've got to remember it's not the Western kind of metaphor of heart, which is all about emotion. I, last Christmas I gave you my heart, all that kind of stuff. When the Bible's talking about heart, it's like the basis for your decision-making. How you come to your decisions is, uh, is, is about heart. And his concern was that his heart was not fully devoted. God loves a devoted heart. We see when he sends uh, Sam, Samuel to go and anoint David, his criteria was God sought a man after his own heart. And that's what David was, a man that was after God's heart, that hadn't had a heart that had turned, didn't have a divided heart. But this isn't about being perfect. David messed up many times, big ways, catastrophic ways. He had doubts, he had fears, he had anger. But the key thing was, he addressed it to God. Even when he was angry with God, he told God that he was angry with God. He didn't tell anyone else. He told God that he was angry with God. You see that throughout the Psalms, all the way. He really struggled at points. But he knew where his home was. He knew, like a homing pigeon, he could always come back to it. Wherever he'd gone to, wherever he was dropped off, wherever he found himself, he found a home to return to. For David, God was the prize, not just the gifts that God gave. And sometimes it's difficult to work out the difference. Do I love God for the gifts, or do I love God because he's the gift giver? And the gifts just reflect his nature. I love him for his nature, not just for what he does for me. How often is God just a part of our life? It's a very important part, but it's just a part. God wants to be the whole, and he's jealously pursuing being the whole. So, as I've said before, Solom the heart, uh, Solomon's heart was the heart of the problem. 
So we see that there's other factors that, that are involved, his foreign wives, his idols, but his heart was the start. His heart was not fully devoted. And so it led to these other things. It made him vulnerable to these other things. The, the divided heart was the cause. It was the cancer that was already there. The problem is, when your heart is not fully devoted to God, it's available to be snatched by anything else. And this is why, when I spoke last time, we talked a lot about heart, the issue of heart. And within that, the, the gift of repentance, the fact that you can be diagnosed with heart disease is great news in the Bible because God deals in heart transplants. Once I realize that this isn't just my kind of little mistake here and there, but I can actually say, you know what? There's a problem with my very core, my very decision-making, my heart. That can actually be quite an overwhelming thing to have to admit. Someone was telling me this week, like, we, we, it's such a big deal to have a right heart. So to have to admit that I don't have a right heart feels like I just throw everything up in the air. It just feels like chaos. Well, bring on the chaos because that's the route through that God can actually bring a change to us. I can't change my heart, but I can look to him who deals in heart transplants, that he could change something in me that I can't reach and I can't deal with myself. Therefore, when I'm confronted by my own corrupt heart, that's good news. Fantastic. That means that I can be changed. I'm not a slave to this because God can set me free from my corrupt heart. thing is, I'm absolutely dependent that it's something that he can do. If it was something like, oh, i just got to break this habit, i just got to change, i just got to work a little bit harder, that's still within my means. And that ain't never going to work. It ain't going to ever happen. But it's a pretty scary thing to say, you know what? I'm completely dependent on him coming through for me on this. So, what turns Solomon's heart? Um, all right, Dan, just read this scripture for me. You don't have to stand. You can just oh, I can read for me. Yeah. Foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite. Edomite, I love all these names, um, <coughs> Sidomite, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall, you, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung uh, to these in love. He had 700 wives. Pause. <coughs> who were princesses and 300 concubines uh, and his his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the nation of the Anamites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, 
the abomination of uh, Moab and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. And you asked why I wanted you to read that. (laughs) (coughs) Right. So this is why we've wanted to do this backwards, because I wanted to get to this, this section. What are you clinging to? So I found that a really curious bit in the, in the scripture there. Um, clung. He clung, or in the NIV, he held fast to. Like, clung gives a sense of depth, of... of dependence of of strength of attraction so when we first see him taking foreign wives in chapter three it's it feels very much like a political alliance that he marries the daughter of pharaoh but now it's he clung to them in love i mean how many love songs can you write using that kind of poetic language clung in love So it's not just a political alliance now. We're talking about emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually invested. You cling to something that you think will keep you safe in a storm. And so this is a clip from King of the Hill. Hang on, Uncle Hank! What on earth are you doing here? I came to find you! I don't know how long I can hold on, so I better say this now. I feel, I, I mean, I, I'm not good at this kind of thing. Mean everything to me. When we were apart today, that was hell. I couldn't wake up in the morning with that. I love you. cling to when you're about to lose your trousers (laughs) what is it that makes you feel safe makes you feel that life is still meaningful so that idea of clinging hanging on well God wants us to cling to him you see that in um, Psalm 62 verse 8 I cling to you your right hand upholds me Psalm 119, 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And then in, in Psalm 91, it's not the same word for, uh, as those for cling, but it's still interesting because it hold, holds fast. So this is God talking. Because he holds fast to me in love, uh, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. But that, that holds fast there is the word delights. So because he delights in me, because he holds to me, clings to me in love, I will deliver him and I'll protect him. And I think there's something about clinging to is the same thing as delighting. What I delight in will be the thing that I cling to. 
So we see all the time with Solomon, and Jeremy used that great, great phrase that Solomon fulfilled David's plan, but not his purpose. And you remember we talked about it at the time. We saw it when and David brought the ark into Jerusalem. He was delighting in the Lord. He was dancing. He was, it was unbridled passion. When we see Solomon doing things, he's kind of, kind of doing the ritual requirements, the minimal. He didn't delight in God. And if we don't delight in him, if we don't give him our heart, our heart is available to be taken by other things. Our heart is available to be turned. If I do not delight in him, I have already engaged in idol worship. So it talks about Solomon worshipping these other gods that, that his wives introduced him to. Now, I'm referring to some stuff here that, that I've, I've drawn from the Tim Keller book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. It's great for this, this kind of stuff. Trying to help us understand what idolatry actually looks like today. Because you might look, like, look at images like that and think, well, that, golden calves, don't do that anymore. But Keller's definition is an idol is a good thing that has become the ultimate thing. A good thing that has become an ultimate thing. And actually, if we look at it, our culture is filled with idols. Well, we don't do shrines or sacrifices. We don't have lots of little gods. But we do it. It just looks different. So our shrines are office towers, spas, gyms, universities, studios, stadiums. Whatever you fancy, it looks very different. What are sacrifices? Well, they're things that must be made, things that we must give in order to make sure we get blessing and defend off disaster. Well, what could our gods be? Beauty, power, money, achievement, self-actualization, that idea that, that determination that I can better myself, I can perfect myself, I can put myself through all of this kind of studying and learning and changing and I can actually produce something valuable out of me. Your family can become an idol. Your reputation, your comfort, your me time. When you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, your noble cause, like, what, what are you prepared to sacrifice for? Could it be like the, the, latest, um, the latest issue that's in the public domain? Romantic relationships, your virtue, your morality, your, your, your good way of living can become an idol to you. Your health, when that's threatened, how does that cause you to react? Even your ministry, it's much harder to spot that because it looks so good but you can actually put that above God. You can worship worship. Even helping others can become an idol to you because that's where you find your meaning and your value and that's what you reach for when you feel threatened. So I might not kneel before Aphrodite's but the young woman that's driven into depression and an eating disorder because of a body image is still worshipping something. You might not be burning incense to Artemis, but if you neglect your family to achieve a higher place in business, 
as child sacrifice. You've neglected your children. Anything can be an idol. There's a story of this army officer that was so determined to, uh, for physical discipline that he actually broke the morale of his troops. There's a story of a woman that had experienced poverty as a child that she then overlooked healthy romantic relationships to make sure that she had a relationship with someone that was financially secure. You get the story of the sports personalities who take steroids and break their body in the quest to, 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 to reach the Hall of Fame. So it's coming a bit closer to home than those kind of images of what they used to do in ancient times. So how do we identify an idol? So an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. It's anything that you're looking to to give you what only God can give you. You spot your idol because it's a thing that if you lose it, life will feel hardly worthwhile living. You identify your idol because it's where you spend your resources, your thinking time, your emotions, your energies, your, your money, without a second thought. It just naturally drifts in that direction. You don't have to think to do it. You just do it. When you're on your own, when you don't have people interrupting your thought pattern, what does your mind drift to? Could that be where your idol is? What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, despondent, or guilty? Fishermen know where to look for fish. They see where the water is moving is where you look for fish. In the same way, what, what stirs you emotionally the most? Look underneath it. I bet you'll find your idol. For which object, for which goal, would you be most tempted to violate your values? I wouldn't lie unless we'd made something else, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advancement, more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favour of God. What causes you to lie? What makes you most tempted to lie? There's many things that we call psychological problems. There are actually issues of idolatry, perfectionism, alcoholism, indecisiveness, the need to control others. So what might idolatry sound like? I've worked all my life to get to this place in my career, and now it's all gone. Can you hear an idol behind that? I've slaved my whole life to give that girl a good life, and this is how she repays me. Is there an idol under there? Are you striving to hear something come from that girl that, gratify, that gratifies a need in you? If I, had, if I only had this... I only had blank, 
then I'd be satisfied. How about this one? I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Do you know that's idolatry? Because it means you failed an idol whose approval matters more to you than God's. Let me just get my ducks in a row. Then I can serve him. Then I'll give. Once I've just got, I've righted some wrongs in my own life first. Once that's settled, then, then I'll be ready. I will trust God if, follow the if, it will lead you to your idol. God, I trusted you, but follow it. You'll find your idol. Because he wasn't the goal in himself then. He was a means to an end. So what could it feel like to let go of your idols? Oh, wait, no, I've jumped. So we need to keep appeasing our idols with different sacrifices. Uh, When has your idol loved you? When has your idol forgiven you? Counterfeit gods will always disappoint and often destructively so. So letting go of my idols, how do you do it? What does it look like? I think it would be wrong to think, oh, I just got to let go. It's about the letting go of an idol. I think the actual way to do it is, is about changing what you're clinging to rather than focusing on letting go of something. Because the human heart was made to worship, it will always find something. So I want to change what I'm clinging to. But also, more importantly, I want to see who clings to me. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. He holds my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. There is no one one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I'm in his hand. Out of my father's hand. He's clinging to me. I think the key is we need a revelation that he has clung to me. He was in heaven with the father in perfect unity with the father. He had all glory and honor. He had everything. Yet he left it. He gave it up to come and live in this world, to live the life I should have lived and die the death that I should have died so that he could get me. That was the extent that he went to cling to me. He clung to me in a storm. So, what does it feel like to get rid of an idol? Phil, can you grab my 
little box back. Now, I've said what it sounds like and looks like, but now I'm going to talk about what it feels like. Now, when I've talked to the youth about this concept, I've talked about a handle. What is it that you reach for when you feel insecure? And where's my couple of helpers? All right. Let's move this out a bit here. So if I'm up on a ledge, kind of like this guy, I'm likely to feel a little insecure. I'm likely to feel a little bit apprehensive about life. And you always see it in the movies, when their foot kind of slips, they grab hold of something. They reach for something, they grab hold of it. Your idol is what you grab hold of when you feel insecure, when you feel uncertain in life. Have a little think, what is that for you? When I've talked to young people, it's often, when I feel a little bit low about myself, let me just text that girl, see if she texts me back. That, that's my handle. I feel, I feel better about that. When, when I think, oh, I'm not sure if these people like me, let me, I'm just going to go on the computer and play some games for a little bit, just to take my mind away. What is it that you reach for and you grab? It just comes down over this side to get rid of that. So I'll stand on either side. So you stand there. You stand there. No, we'll risk it. So, so in, so the actual feeling of letting go of an idol is a really scary concept because there's a point of no return. You go a bit far away. <laughs> where you've got to make a decision to fall backwards. <laughs> Thank you, lads. And it feels like, like my hands are sweating. I'm feeling the sweat. My heart is going faster. They actually caught me much quicker than a lot of people catch me, which is a little bit further down. I feel a little bit breathless. What does it feel like to realise... I can't, I can't hold myself up. I've gone past the point of no return. That's what it can feel like to fall. But I fell into the everlasting, ever-loving arms of God because he came for me. He has loved me. And so the best way to get rid of my idols is not trying really hard to stop being fascinated with what I was fascinated with. But ask God, cause me to delight in you. Cause me to see who you are, that I can celebrate that. St. Augustine said, talking about God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We're never going to be satisfied. Idols cannot meet our needs. We need a heart that is devoted to him. And the thing is, every human heart must live for something, but unless the Holy Spirit intervenes, that thing will never be God. Because no one searches for him. And we are fooled by the deceptiveness of our heart. 
But we don't live in a world without the Holy Spirit. He comes and he sets something in our hearts that searches for eternity, that searches for him. This isn't about trying harder. But it's about inviting Jesus to reveal that he's more beautiful to our to, that he's more beautiful to our imagination that he'll become more attractive to our hearts than your idols are and it will cause us to rejoice rejoicing and repentance goes hand in hand i celebrate who he's now brought uh, brought me to see so this question for you what do you need to let go of in order to, to cling to the one who has clung to you? Is there something that he's let, telling you to let go of so that you don't keep lurching for it when you're insecure, but your heart can be redirected to him? Jack's going to come um, and lead us in this next, this next song, but I thought there was a few lines of this song that were quite relevant. Let me just draw your attention to that. I lean not onto my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. I'm in the hands. He's clung to me. He's sacrificed for me. I'm falling back into his hands, into his arms. I will give it all to you trusting that you can make something beautiful out of me. I can't get there myself. I can't make it happen. But I trust. I'm falling. And I'm trusting that you can do something good out of it. There's nothing I hold on to. God, I don't want to hold on to anything. I don't want to hold on to anything else. So let's use this song. And as we're standing, as we're responding, what, 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 what we're asking is, God, let me see you. I want to see you, that I can fall in love with you all the more. you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.